So I want to start by actually reading to you guys a brief passage from a book that I've been recently looking at. It's called called, called, called Growth Groups uh, by Colin Marshall, and it's about leading small group ministries. Um, And this passage was actually a recent topic of discussion amongst the community group leaders. Uh, As many of you guys know, we have uh, CGLMs once a month, and this past month in February, we talked about this passage um, and what it means for our community groups. But I think it's worth, worth it for, for all of you guys to hear, hear it as well. And so the, just before I read it, I want to make sure that you guys understand the context. So Marshall, uh, when he's coming up to this passage, he has just gotten done explaining how you don't really have Christianity if you don't have relationships. Um, it's a religion of relationships. We have the relationship of love and fellowship within the Trinity, with the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We have relationships between us and God. We have relationships between us and each other as the body of Christ. Uh, So he's setting the stage by highlighting the need for relationship and community in the Christian life. But then he says this, if relationships are fundamental to Christianity... What dangers can there be in stressing community in small groups? So he poses this question. Yes, they're vital, but what dangers do they pose? And he answers his own question with this. He says, the purpose of the group can easily focus on the development of human relationships. A successful group is seen to be characterized by intimacy, vulnerability, openness, forgiveness, and so on. This emphasis on human relationship is often at the expense of knowing God and the salvation of Christ. J.I. Packer observes that there has been a shift in the purpose of small groups in the last 25 years. And this is a quote from J.I. Packer. It is not so much thought of as a way of seeking God as much as seeking Christian friends. The vertical access, so the access relating us to God, is not emphasized as much as the horizontal access, which is us and each other. It's not that prayer and Bible study are absent, but they are seen as tools to create community. So do you get the point that Marshall is trying to make here? As a church, we need to be careful about, honestly, one of the things that I think is one of our greatest strengths, and that's building community. I really do believe that that is one of our greatest strengths as a church. Um, as one of your elders, that is one of the things that I am so thankful for, being part of this church community. Redeemer is hospitable, welcoming. You guys are caring to each other and to those outside of the church. You are open with one another. You share your lives with each other. God has united this church with a heart for a community and building it. One of the common remarks that I hear from past members who I've talked to who have moved away is that they miss the community that they were a part of here. And I love that. I miss that that's what they miss. But like I said, we must be careful and not grow complacent in just growing community. As Marshall points out, community should not be the end goal that we're pursuing. If Redeemer Church is merely just a great group of people Um, that others can join to make friends and to be cared for, then we've missed the point. Yeah, we want to do that, but it's more than that. That's just a social club. That's not a church. A church must use community to serve a greater purpose. 
So think about our very own mission statement. Hopefully, you guys all know it. Pretty much every Sunday morning, I come up here and say it. Brian said it this morning. Um, think about what do, what do we say just before we invite people to fill out the, the contact cards. Our mission is to build redemptive communities of gospel-centered people. Have you reflected on that statement at all? Have you given that some thought? It does not mean that our mission is simply to build communities. No, our communities are meant to be redemptive and gospel-centered. That means that they're made up of the redeemed, that they are united around the redemption that we have, and most importantly of all, they're meant to fix our hearts on our Redeemer, who is Jesus Christ. Now, my aim this morning is to fan the flame of our church's mission in your guys' minds, in your hearts. I want us to be a church who doesn't just do community well, but does redemptive community well. I want us to be a church who is all the more diligent to pursue community, not for its own sake, but for the sake of our Redeemer, to help us point one another to him. And I want us to do that because that's what God wants us to do. And we'll see that in our passage this morning. If you haven't already, please turn to Colossians 3. I believe that's on page 984 in the Black Bibles and the Pews. But we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 17. Um, And as we look at Paul's message to the church in Colossae, pay attention to how he's casting the same vision and mission that I was just talking about. So I'll let you guys get there for a second, and then I'll have you follow along with me as I read. So follow along with me as I read Colossians 3, verses 1 through 17. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, Kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful 
Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So do you see it? Paul's mission is the same as ours. Don't forget that he's writing this to a church. He's not just writing to an individual. This is what he wants them all to do together as a church community. He is calling the Colossians to build redemptive communities of gospel-centered people. Paul's reminding them and us that our ultimate pursuit is to live together as those who are redeemed and united with Christ And he does that by drawing our attention to three things. And so I'm going to call those three things the challenge, the source, and the fruit of redemptive communities. And so we're going to look at each of those three points. Um, And what I mean by each of those will make sense more as we go along. So let's start first by considering the challenges that there are in building redemptive communities of gospel-centered people. So look with me again at verses 1 and 2 in the passage. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. So notice who Paul is speaking to here. He's specifically addressing those who have been raised with Christ. If then you have been raised with Christ. He says that explicitly. So what he is saying only matters to those who have been raised to Christ. He's not addressing this to anyone else. In other words, he's addressing those who have been redeemed. And it's important for you to understand what redeemed means. I've used this word a lot already. What does it mean to be redeemed, though? For one to be redeemed means that one is ransomed, that one is delivered from something else. If you've redeemed something, you've paid the price to set something free from something else that was controlling it or mastering it and had power over it. A slave who is redeemed has been, someone has paid their slave price so that they could go free, that they are no longer a slave, that they are free men and women. Now, Paul doesn't use the term redemption or redeemed here. We don't see that in Colossians 3, verses 1 through 17. But that is exactly what he has in mind when he is talking about those who are raised with Christ. So look back at me at Colossians 2, verses 11 through 14. So that should be just earlier on in the page. Paul says this. He says, "...in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands." By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Okay, so he's talking about being raised with Christ. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So Paul talks about the Colossians being raised with Christ from the dead, but then he goes on. How, 
was God able to make them alive together with Christ, which is how, like, them being raised? Look again at verse 14. God canceled the record of debt that stood against them. Because their debt was paid, they were raised with him from the dead. They were raised because they were redeemed. See that? So now, fast forward again to our passage in Colossians 3, verses 1 and 2. When Paul is directing these words to those who are raised with Christ, he's also directing these words to those who have been redeemed with Christ. In Paul's mind, those things go together. So why do I bring all of this up? I'm trying to address the challenge of building redemptive communities. So why does it matter that Paul is speaking to the redeemed? Because many people who have not been redeemed, a lot of people haven't been redeemed, and therefore can't be truly part of redemptive communities. They can be around them. They can maybe witness what is going on, but they're not a part of the redemptive community. They're not helping to build it up. Before we go further, we must consider our own status before Christ. Are we with him or are we not? If you try to be... to. If you try to have a redemptive community of of gospel-centered people who aren't redeemed, you will fail at that. So those who are redeemed are those whose faith is in Christ. We saw that in Colossians 2. It said, you were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. So it is through faith. So where does faith rest? Christians are those who believe that our standing before God is not because of our own good works. We don't even think that we can do good works. And like, we recognize that all of our works are to some degree stained by sin. Um, that they're stained by selfishness and seeking our own glory. So instead, we believe that our standing before God is based upon Jesus' good works, not our own. He was perfect. He was sinless. His desires and pursuits were always to serve the Father in every way and at every time. It was never stained by selfishness and sin. Jesus lived to serve the Father. We don't. None of us even come close to doing that. We can't even live up to our own standards that we set. Like, think about it. Think about the standards. Think about the things that you share with other people are the ways that we're called to live. Things that you say, you don't live up to them yourself. None of us do. So if we can't even live up to our own standards, how are we going to live up to God's standards? No, we can't rely on ourselves to make us right before God. We rely on Christ. And we love him for sacrificing his own life through his crucifixion so that we can be right with God. This is what is meant by redemption. He paid the debt we owed to God for our sins. The price he paid was his death on the cross, death that he didn't deserve. When we acknowledge our sin and trust in him, that is a demonstration of our faith, and that is how we are redeemed by Christ. So is that you? Now, we cannot hope to follow Paul's counsel in Colossians 3 and to build these redemptive communities that we're talking about if we ourselves are not resting in the redemption of Christ. It's impossible. The person who is not redeemed by Jesus ultimately wants nothing to do with a truly redemptive community. Now remember how Paul sets the stage for us in this passage. 
Look again with me at verses 1 through 4 in Colossians 3. It says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now, Paul is calling the Colossians and us to seek the things that are above because we are new beings whose lives are hidden with Christ. They weren't before, but they are now. We had an old self, but now we are a new creation. We are a new life in Jesus. So we died and were reborn in Christ because of his redemption. So who did, who did Paul understand us to previously be? What were our old selves like? Now, Paul doesn't say much specifically about that in these verses, but he has a lot to say about that in the, the verses and chapters that precede this passage. And it's important for us to look at them and to understand what his view is. When Paul is approaching this passage, he's calling us to live in our new selves, recognizing that we aren't the old self. And so we want to understand who he knew we once were so that we can appreciate all the more who we are now in Christ. It makes the new lives that we have in him all the more incredible. And it shows how impossible it is to be unredeemed and to be part of, um, of building up redemptive communities of gospel-centered people. And so I want to point out five traits that Paul attributes to those who are not redeemed. He says a lot more than this if you look at the rest of his letters. Like if you look at Romans, for instance, you're going to get even more um, traits that he talks about. But these are just five traits that we see him mention earlier on in the book of Colossians. So he's already given this to the Colossians. He's already built this frame of mind in them when they've gotten to Colossians 3. And so I want us to have that same frame of mind about the old self, who we once were apart from Christ. He's got, and even though we're just looking at this book, he's got plenty to say. Um, And you're going to hear me say a lot of numbers. I'm just reading off the chapter and verse that these are coming from. So I don't want to say Colossians 3, verse 2. I'm just going to say, Three, two, just so that you guys can follow along quickly because there's going to be a lot of verses that we bring up. So, five traits that Paul highlights were who we are apart from Jesus Christ. So first, Paul says that those who are not redeemed are in darkness. In 1 verse 13, he says that they are in the domain of darkness. In 2 verse 8, he says that they are captive to empty deceits. In 2 verse 20, he says that they are submitting themselves to unnecessary regulations. Now, all of that is to say those who are separated from Christ are blind and led astray. In their darkness, they can't distinguish what is truth and what is lies. That's why they follow rules and regulations that are totally unnecessary, and at times even unhelpful. They follow them because they think they need to, because they don't understand truth from, from what is false. They have no idea what is actually right, and they don't know God. They don't understand him rightly. It's impossible for those who are separated from Christ to point people to him because they don't understand who he even is. 
not fully. Second trait, they're enemies of God. The unredeemed are enemies of God. In, in 1 verse 20, 21, Paul says that they are alienated and hostile towards God. He also says that their deeds are evil. Now, sometimes non-Christians can accuse God of being cruel and unloving. They claim that if Christianity is true, then God is keeping people away who genuinely want to be near him. What about people who died, who never heard about Jesus Christ? Maybe they wanted him, and they just never had the opportunity to turn, from him, turn to him. I've heard people make that claim. They say God is a cruel and unloving God for not giving people that opportunity. But that isn't true. Those who are unredeemed do not long for God. They are hostile towards him. They are his enemies and actively work against him. Their works might appear good at times. They might do a lot of um, helpful things for people. They might give a lot of money to donations and help serve in a lot of different ways. But their motivation is ultimately, if you look down, it's, for, it's motivated for themselves and for their own glory, not for God. They might like certain aspects of him. They might like the things that God can offer and give them. But ultimately, they hate him. These are not people who are going to build redemptive communities that are there to build up and to point to Jesus Christ and to worship him. The third trait is that the unredeemed are empty. Now, Paul says in 2 verse 23 that their pursuits are of no value. Not just a little value, they are of no value. Because they are serving themselves and not God, nothing that they do is of any merit before him. Their pursuit isn't Christ. They might work and strive hard after goals. They might strive to succeed, but they will will have nothing at the end of the day the day when they stand before God, before God their judge. They will have nothing to show for the work that they did because it wasn't for him. It wasn't to seek his glory at all. It was for themselves. Fourth, uh, similarly to the third trait, Paul says that the unredeemed are dead. He says that explicitly in 2 verse 13. Not only are their pursuits empty and meaningless, but they're dead because of their sin. They have no spiritual strength or vitality. Um, Think about it. It's it's not that they're just weak or lethargic. Um, They're not just kind of getting by. They're not weak at all. They're just dead. They are simply dead and lifeless. They can't contribute to a redemptive community in that state. And fifth... Finally, the unredeemed are guilty. As Paul says in 2 verses 13 and 14, they are in debt and trespassers of God's demands, God's legal demands. They are not forgiven and they have not been redeemed. They are guilty before him and they'll face his wrath in judgment when he comes. All of the traits that we've talked about are horrible, but this one is the worst. In stating that the unredeemed are guilty, it's not only that they have turned away from God, but that God has also turned away from them because of their sin. They face eternal punishment that they have earned for themselves because of their sin. 
And they have no way escape from it because they have rejected Christ and the merciful redemption that he's offered them. They will spend an eternity not in community with Christ, but in a miserable and tormenting separation from him because they chose to serve themselves rather than God. Friends, don't be in darkness. Don't be enemies of God. Don't be empty, dead, and guilty before him. Apart from Christ, you are in bondage to sin. Repent and believe, though, and receive the redemption that he offers. And in doing so, become part of the redemptive community that we are seeking to build in this church as Christ's redeemed people. You can never be part of what we are seeking to do here unless you do. But let's say you are redeemed, and I believe a vast majority of you are for those who are redeemed, the challenge that we face is building redemptive, in building redemptive communities is that we continue to live as though we are unredeemed still. It's, I, I, was, I was thinking about this as I was preparing, and I was thinking about myself um, and how, like I had this analogy come to my mind of, it's like we can live as though we are stuck in a prison cell. We're living like we're stuck in this cell when all the while the door is just wide open and we're free to leave whenever we want. In fact, we're meant to step out of that cell, but we continue to live behind the bars because we think that's way, where we are supposed to be. We still think we're locked in, even though we're not. I know I'm prone to doing that, and I believe much, most of us are. We choose sin over God a lot of the time because we give up fighting against it too quickly. We think that we're still enslaved to it rather than recognizing that we are free to pursue holiness. Don't overlook what Paul is calling us to in Colossians 3. Set your mind on the things above, not on earthly things, is what he's telling us. In verse, verse 5, he says to put to death what is earthly in you. And so Paul, when Paul is talking about these earthly things, he's talking about our idols and our lusts. He's talking about our sin. He's not just telling us to forsake all earthly things like we need to live this ascetic lifestyle where we're merely spiritual beings. He's calling us to put to death and kill our sinful desires, the sinful pleasures that we have. Now, Paul wouldn't have to call the Colossians to that if it was just automatic and easy. It isn't. Sin still influences us, and we still practice old habits that we've always had from even before we, we were redeemed. We still love things that we shouldn't, and we allow ourselves to become distracted from Christ all of the time. Hence, why Paul has written this to us. So as Christians, as the redeemed, we must remember what it means to be redeemed and who we are now in Christ that is the root of what it means to build redemptive communities of gospel-centered people. And that's where we turn to our second point, and that's the source of redemptive communities. Or maybe you could think of it as the nature of a redemptive community. Now, this is the heart of Paul's message and the heart of what it means to be a redemptive community. We're going to look again at verses 1 through 4. Now, when we looked at it before, we were, again, creating the context. We were thinking about Paul, what Paul had to say about the old self, who we previously were apart from Christ. Now, we can't get the full weight of Paul's argument if you don't get that. But now we're moving on to Paul's true point, what he's been building to. 
we need to understand who we now in who we now are in Christ in contrast to who we once were. So look with me again at verses 1 through 4 in Colossians 3. It says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So what is Paul saying here? He's talking about dying and being raised with Christ and having our lives hidden with him and awaiting glory. What exactly does he mean by that? That is where it's again helpful to look at what Paul has already said to the Colossians earlier in his letter and what he's said regarding that. And again, he said a lot. He said even more about that than who they used to be. Paul counters the five traits of the unredeemed with five traits of the redeemed. So that's what we're going to look at now. So the first one, instead of being in darkness, the redeemed are in light. Paul says that we were transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. Um, So Christ's kingdom is one of light, not darkness. That's why they're contrasted with one another. When we are redeemed, we are given sight to see and to understand truth. We are anchored in it. We aren't tossed to and fro by lies anymore. Paul says in 1 verse 10 that we are increasing in knowledge of God. And in 1 verses 26 and 27, he says that we are given revelation that was once hidden from the world. We were aimless once. We couldn't know God But now we have the guidance of the Holy Spirit and we can know him, the creator of the universe. Now imagine this. Imagine you're on the top of a mountain range. You look out and you see some snow-capped peaks, like so there's a bunch of mountains around. You see the snow on the top of them. You see this great forest landscape in front of you. Uh, You see rivers. You see some like tall, amazing waterfalls off in the distance even, and they all flow to this pristinely blue lake in this valley. Um, and above all that, you see this like vibrantly blue sky. There's, there's only a couple clouds in the sky. They're just off in the distance, and they're perfectly white and, and like puffy. Um, just imagine the most beautiful scene you could imagine, like landscape. This, this is mine, basically. Um, so you, so you see all that, but then you wait because you want to see the sunset. Uh, so you stay there, and as the sun starts to go down behind the mountains, you, ski, you see the sky start to change from the blue, and it takes on tons of other hues. It becomes orange and pink and purple, and just before it sets, it's this dark, rich red, um, just before darkness sets in. Now, wouldn't that be breathtaking to see? Wouldn't you feel like you were given this precious gift to be able to see such a sight? Wouldn't you want to hold on to the pleasure of that evening? But now, consider that same scene. You're in that same place. That same thing is right there in front of you, but you're blind, and you've always been blind. You've never been able to see. The beauty of what is right in front of you is just missing to you. You have no concept of it. 
even if someone described it to you, it's pointless to you because you have no framework. You, you don't know what things look like, so you have no framework for even understanding what a mountain or a waterfall or the sunset looks like in all of its majesty and glory. You, ju- you just can't comprehend it. In a sense, it's worthless to you. You might be able to appreciate that other people appreciate it, but you can't appreciate it for yourself like you would if you could see it. That is the contrast that we have between going from in darkness to the light. Before, we could not comprehend the glory of God and how wonderful he is. But now we can. Now we can understand his love and the ways he demonstrates it to the world. We were blind to it before, but now we can see. And yes, we see it unclearly now. There's a haze in our sight because of the sin that we still wrestle with. But when we appear with Christ in glory at his return, any lack of clarity, any haze that we're experiencing in this life will disappear and we will be able to fathom God's beauty and majesty with perfect vision. To be redeemed and and to be brought into that light and to hope for that day to come is incredible. But it doesn't stop there. The second trait that we possess as Christ's redeemed is that we are at peace with God now. We were once enemies, but now, as Paul says in 1 verse 20, that we are reconciled and at peace with God. Christ has changed our hearts so that we no longer fight against our creator. We love him rather than hate him like we once did. And that's good for us. That's how we were meant to be. We were fighting a war when we were fighting against God that we could not win. But now we can be united with him. Christ has made a way for us to take shelter in our God rather than try to fight against our trials on our own. When we're dealing with hardship, we can seek him and his support rather than just deal with it on our own. We are now allied with the one who, with a single word, could create or destroy all things. He's that powerful. We are allied with the one who knows everything and has ordained all things that happen. There is no safer place to be than allied with our God. And Christ died on the cross. He became an enemy of the Father himself so that we no longer needed to be, so that we could be allied with him. Third, because of Christ's redemption, we are now full We lack nothing in Christ because he poured himself out on the cross. We are filled with all blessings of God, and he keeps nothing good from us. Paul says in 1 verses 11 and 12 and in 2 verse 7 that we are given every reason for joy and thanksgiving. In 2 verse 19, he says that we are nourished and knit together as a body. God nourishes us. In 110, he says that we bear fruit. And in 128, it is clear that he has given us purpose and mission to work towards in fellowship with Christ. Before we were empty, we were aimless in our pursuits. We were doing nothing of value. We had no merit before God and all of our pursuits were valueless. But now we are full. We have everything we could need in Christ. We have an identity with him, and, our, and as our passage says, our life is hidden with Christ. 
And we have a purpose greater than ourselves to live for now. We have the great commission to pursue and to fulfill with one another. Let's do an exercise. I want you guys to fill in the blank of the statement that I'm about to say. If I had blank, then I would be happy. So I'll repeat that. Think about what you'd fill that blank in. If I had blank, then I would be happy. So have that idea in your mind. Now let's think about another one. If I wasn't blank, then I would be satisfied and content. Again, if I wasn't blank, I would be satisfied and content. So what went in those blanks for you? I'm sure we all have those things. Do you wish you looked different? Know that God sees Christ's beauty when he looks at you. Do you wish you weren't so insecure? You could not be more secure than you already are in Christ. Do you wish you were more successful? Know that God is pleased with you and rejoices over you already. Success has no bearing on his view of you. Do you wish others viewed you differently? The opinions of others are like a single drop in the ocean compared to God's view of you. And God adores you. Do do you regret something that you've done in the past? Know that Christ has already paid the price for that sin. That debt no longer belongs with you in him. The point that I'm trying to make is this. Because Christ sacrificed himself for us, because he redeemed us, we are, complete, we are more complete and fulfilled than we could ever imagine. Know that. Fourth, the fourth trait of God's redeemed people is that we are now alive. We are alive because Christ raised us from the dead. Paul makes that clear in 2 verses 12 and 13. We already looked at these verses. You were buried with Christ in his death so that you could be raised with him into new life in his resurrection. That's what Paul's saying. Your old self died so that you could be reborn into a new life that is free of the enslavement of sin. As Paul says in 2.15 also, that we are freed of the authority of demonic rulers and authorities. They're disarmed. They still do fight against us. We still have to arm ourselves against them. But the power that they once held over us is gone. Someone who is dead has no defense against those who want to maim or destroy their body. But we're not dead any longer. We're alive. We can fight back. We have vitality and strength given to us by the Holy Spirit to fight against temptations and sin and to pursue holiness and righteousness and the glory of God. Instead of just giving up We can fight and persevere against our sins, and we can win against them. We have that power in the Holy Spirit because Jesus was willing to die for us. And finally, the greatest trait of all, the reason that all of the other ones really are possible is because of this one. By living a perfect life and dying for our sins on the cross, Jesus made us righteous and loved by God. Colossians 2 verse 18 says we cannot be disqualified. And why does he say that? Because as 1 verse 10 and 2 verse 13 say, we are forgiven of our sins. 
And not only that, it's not simply that we are just not bad anymore, like we can be in this just like neutral state. It's not that. We are made good and righteous also. Paul says in 1 uh, verse 22 that we are holy and blameless and above reproach. We are pleasing to God, as it says in 1.10. And in 3 verse 12, we are God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Friends, we should all strive to, pe- to please God by repenting of our sins and doing what is right. But we do not do those things to earn his love and favor. You could not be more loved by him than you already are in Christ. You have the perfect devotion and obedience of Christ already attributed to you because of the redemption you have in him. And he did it because he loves you regardless of your sins and weaknesses and tendencies to turn from him. That's why we do what is right. We don't do it to earn his love. We do it as a demonstration of our thanks because he already does love us. He knew even as he hung on the cross that none of us would ever even want to love him in return if he didn't initiate with us first and change our hearts so that we could love him. We would never merit the sacrifice that he made for us. We have no leverage over him. We simply get to bask in the joy of his grace and mercy. This is even greater than mere alliance with God. This is us becoming his family. We are his adopted sons and daughters. He is diligent to care for us, to teach us, to grow us, and to give us all that we need every moment of every day. He is our provider, our protector, our comforter, our counselor, our shepherd, our friend, so many other things. To be loved by God is the single greatest gift anyone could ever receive. And we have that. We have all of that. It is the greatest honor to be had, and it is the most remarkable privilege. Christ secured that for us through his sacrifice. Now, all of that is to say we have more than we could ever hope for because our lives are with Christ and because he has redeemed us. Our passage in Colossians 3 doesn't state all of that explicitly, but it's all wrapped up in what Paul is saying. This is the vision of the Christian life that Paul has and what he is calling us to in our passage. He wants us to live as those who are in the light, who are at peace with God, who are full and alive in him. And finally, he wants the, Col- he wants the Colossians and us to live as those who are loved and made, made righteous by Christ if we have faith. He wants us to live like we are actually redeemed. That is the source of building redemptive communities of gospel-centered people. In a sense, we're not actually the ones that are building them at all. Christ is the one who's doing the work. He redeemed. He has given us new life. He's changed our hearts by the power of his spirit. He creates the redemptive communities. He's the source and he's the fountain that they flow out of. The way that we just actively participate in building them is by reminding one another of who we are in Christ and to encourage one another to live like it is true and to help bring other people into that redemption by sharing the gospel with them. That is the entire foundation of Paul's argument in Colossians 3. He is saying, because we are united with Christ, let's live as those who are united with him. 
Let's live lives differently from those who are not redeemed, those who are in darkness, enemies of God, empty, dead, and guilty before their judge. And by living lives that look different, we bring him glory. God is not a God who just saves people, even though that in and of itself is amazing and incredible. He is a God who saves people, and he wants them to know that they're saved. That's true for us. He wants us to know the love that he has for us. And as we know that and live differently because of that, we bring him glory. So how does that knowledge of who we are in Christ change us? If a redemptive community is one of composed of people whose lives are lived out like they're redeemed, what does that actually look like? Now those are the questions that lead us to our final point. And that is the fruit of redemptive communities. So we can see what the fruit of redemptive communities looks like by going further into our passage. So far, we've only actually just looked at the first four verses, and we've got 17. Um, But trust me, the rest of the the sermon will go a lot quicker. Um, But um, the, the way that Paul talks about that is he talks about it in terms of putting off the old self and putting on the new self. We're putting off one thing to replace it with something else that is far better. And he tells the Colossians to live as those who are redeemed. So therefore, the putting off of our earthly things, the putting off of our sins, and the putting on of godliness is the fruit of living out our redemption. I imagine it like Paul's, in a sense, telling us to take off some like old, dirty, and tattered clothes that we've been wearing that used to fit us, but don't anymore. So he's telling us, take that off. You have these new, beautiful, royal robes to put on because you are the prince and princesses of the King Jesus. It's like, that's what Paul is calling us to do. He wants the Colossians in us to live in a manner pleasing to God. And we will do that when we embrace who we are in Christ. We're not going to do that just by telling one another, do this or do that. Don't do that also. But by just telling us what to do and not to do isn't what really transforms the way that we live our lives. What truly transforms us is looking to Christ and knowing who we are in him, who he has made us to be. That's what transforms a community. And that's what bears fruit with true godly living and through mortification of sin, as we'll see. So now, I want us to look at each section individually. We're going to look at two sections. So first, we're going to look at the fruit of a redemptive community as it puts off its sin. Then we're going to look at the fruit that is born as we put on godliness. That's the way that Paul approaches it, so I figure that's probably a wise, wise thing to follow. Um, so first, let's look at verses 5 through 11. Paul says this, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk with your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. 
Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. So as I already said, as we participate in Christ's work of building redemptive communities of gospel-centered people, part of the fruit of that will be that will be born of that is that we will be putting sin to death. And notice how Paul uses that strong language here. He says, kill it. Um, he doesn't say, just, just work on it. Um, he doesn't say, just kind of keep it under control as best as you can. He says, kill it. Put it to death. Give it a mortal blow. A community that is redemptive will be a community in which its members are taking their sins seriously and they're killing them. That is what repentance is. Repentance is an acknowledgement that our sin is displeasing to God and it's a turning away from it because of that fact. We don't want to displease God any longer and so we turn from our sins and pursue righteousness. And notice how Paul challenges us to face our sin directly. He names the sins. He calls them the disgusting things that they are. He doesn't minimize them in any way. He calls it sexual immorality. He doesn't just call it struggling with porn. He calls it covetousness, not just wrestling with discontentment. He doesn't make excuses for the sins. He calls it evil desires and obscene talk. As Christians, we know our hope because we know our hope is in Christ's righteousness and not our own, that give us, gives us freedom to own our sins, to recognize them for the evil that they are. But that's not so that we can just continue in them. It's so that we can effectively kill them and put them to death. We only hinder our own ability to fight our sins if we minimize them. Let's be that redemptive community that calls our sin what it is, that we confess that sin to one another and that we repent of it, that we can, we can own those sins knowing that we aren't guilty of them any longer and so that we can pursue righteousness so that we don't need to live in them any longer. Let's call our sin what it is so that we can eradicate it from our lives. I heard this question once and I thought it was very thought-provoking. It was, what do you think about when you have nothing else to think about? So it's kind of interesting. What do you think about when you have nothing else to think about? So just when, when you're done worrying about certain responsibilities or tasks that you have to complete, when your mind is just free to wander, what does your mind go to? I heard uh, Sinclair Ferguson, he's a pastor and theologian, say that, say that once. That question, I think, is worth considering because it gives us insight into the sinful desires that we could be devoting ourselves to. So give that question some thought later today. If you see that your thoughts are gravitating towards sin, confess that to a brother or sister and kill that sin. Let's not live as those who are mastered by our sins anymore because we're not. As verse 10 says, we are being renewed after the image of our creator. Sin distorts that image, so let's be those who become like him by putting off our sin. Our goal is not just comfort. It's not to feel good. Our goal is Christ-likeness. But the thing is, as we pursue that, that will begin to feel good. Our sin won't have the pleasing, just like, connection for us that it once had. It will become, we won't gain pleasure from it any longer. 
We want to take pleasure in being like our Lord. So that's what we want to pursue. And we already know, um, as we kind of shift to the next passage, we already know what the other side of the coin is. So there's the putting off of our sin, but the other fruit of building redemptive communities, or what a redemptive community will bear, is that they're made up of people who are putting on godliness. So look with me at verses 12 through 17. It says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, so much could be said about the traits that Paul just mentioned in this passage that we looked at. You could do a whole sermon series on each one of them. Um, we will not even scratch the surface of what, um, what could be said about these and what the application of them would look like in a redemptive community. So I'm not, gonna, I'm not even going to attempt to do that. But I do want us to at least highlight two traits that to some degree I would say sum up all of these. And those are love and joy. So first, love. Paul says that it binds everything together in perfect harmony. Compassion, kindness, humility, patience, peace, those other things that he's mentioned, they're all, in a sense, expressions of love. Redemptive communities are marked by it. Love is a defining characteristic of them. And it flows from the fact that we know the love that God has for us because of Christ. We know that we are loved, and that that allows us, that naturally overflows into us demonstrating love to others. If you struggle to love others well, then I encourage you to consider just how loved you are. I bet part of the reason that you struggle with loving others is because you're failing to recognize that you are loved by God. It will transform the way that you care for others. Someone who knows they have the love of God listens well because they know God is always attentive to them. Someone who knows the love of God forgives others easily because they know how forgiven they are. Someone who knows the love of God is humble because they they don't have to seek glory for themselves. They know they don't need it because they already have it in Christ. So let's know that we are loved by God and let's love others all the more deeply because of that. Now practically, this could work itself out and I think one of the ways that would be best for us to consider is that that works its way out through the way that we deal with conflict with one another. Whether it's in marriages, whether it's in friendships, whether it's our community groups or life transformation groups, um, this has 
incredible bearing on those relationships. Remember that Paul is definitely presupposing conflict when he wrote all of this. I mean, he even mentioned the fact that they're going to have complaints against one another. And he's talking to the church, so he knows people in the church are complaining about one another. But a redemptive community is not one that just simply never has conflict. A redemptive community is one that faces that conflict and perseveres through it in love towards one another. It means seeking to understand one another's points of view. It means outdoing one another and showing honor. It means that when things just don't seem to click with maybe your fellow community group members or LTG members, you don't leave them, but you work on improving and strengthening those relationships. So think about it. What does our desire to leave our group, what does that say about the way that we view the purpose of that, like let's say LTG? Is your LTG meant to just simply be a group of friends who get along easily and put each other at ease so that you're, just kind of, you're refreshed throughout the week? Or is your LTG supposed to be a group of friends who refine and help one another grow into the image of Christ? I pray that you guys will genuinely enjoy one another and put each other at ease. But that's not always going to be the case if we're helping one another to grow in Christ. That means we're going to have to address one another's sin. That means we're going to have to face that at times we're just not happy with each other or we don't connect with one another like we want to. But what if the disconnect that you experience with the others in your group is exactly what the Lord wants to use right now in your life to refine and grow you. We shouldn't flee from hard relationships. We should be thankful for them and allow the Lord to sanctify us by them. And we can let them remind us that the only reason we have a relationship with God is because he did not give up on reconciling with us. That is how they go from being simply communities to truly redemptive communities that we're a part of with each other. And then second, the second trait that I want to point out that Paul emphasizes is joy. Someone who is redeemed by Christ experiences joy and thankfulness. So a redemptive community will exude joy and thankfulness. Paul says that repeatedly in the last couple of verses in the passage He says, be thankful. Have thankfulness in your hearts to God. In everything that you do, give thanks to God the Father through Jesus Christ. Redemptive communities are joyful because they know what they have been saved from. They know the grace that God has given them, though they didn't even deserve it. When trials and hardships press in on them, they don't let their eyes sink down so that they can only see their troubles. When we do that, we can grow hopeless and despairing because we think our life is only composed of that trial and hardship that we have, and we lose sight of all the good that is truly there, all that we have to hope in and rejoice in. And so redemptive communities are made of members who help one another to keep our struggles in perspective so that we don't lose sight of the fact that even in those struggles, Christ is with us. He understands. He sympathizes with us. He knows hardship better than any of us do. Even those of us who have dealt with incredible pain and hardship and suffering, Christ has gone through worse. He knows it. He understands it. He knows the pain that we face. 
Such reminders allow us to remain joyful and hopeful even when we are grieving. Grief doesn't mean we, well, let me put it this way. Joyfulness does not mean a total absence of grief. Someone can still be grieving, but have joy and hope in Jesus Christ. Grief should be expected. It is an appropriate response to the fact that we live in a fallen world. But we don't get lost in our grief. We don't despair in it. We don't become hopeless in it. We can rejoice even through tears, knowing that Christ is with us in our trials. And so we want to remind ourselves of that, and we want to remind one another of that. Redemptive communities demonstrate that fact. And finally, friends, let's participate in Christ's work to build redemptive communities of gospel-centered people. My prayer is that we would be a church whose love and joy is abundant and whose sin is being killed because we know of the redemption that we have in Christ. We know who we are in him. My prayer is that we would not just settle on being a great community, but that we would set our sights higher than that, that we would be a community whose foundation, purpose, and desire is to worship our Lord in whom we have life and love everlasting because of the redemption that he has given us. So let's work together. Let's pray together to continue to pursue that redemptive community with one another. Bow your heads with me for prayer. Heavenly Father, God, thank you so much for the truths that you have given us through Paul in your word that remind us of who we once were and who we are now in Christ. God, thank you so much for the fact that we are loved and righteous and we are in the light, that we are at peace with you, that we are full. God, thank you for all of the blessings that we have in Christ. And Christ, thank you for sacrificing yourself on the cross for us. Thank you for paying our debt. Thank you for ransoming us. Thank you for redeeming us. God, help us to have an experiential knowledge of these truths, of this reality, so that we can live them out with one another as a redemptive community that ultimately brings you glory through the joy and love and mortification of sin that we exhibit. God, we want to be that church. God, help us to grow more and more into that image um, each and every day. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.